Hey, this is Andy Jenkins, and welcome to the Warrior Hope Podcast. Now, in this episode, we're going to kind of swing in a different direction. Uh, I think we brought you uh, one week recently, I've brought you a chaplain, that was episode 11, that was Don Mallon. Uh, week uh, number 12, I brought you Pastor Robert Caridi, who is in a church in upstate New York, and they are doing some incredible things with veterans. Uh, the next week, episode 13, Chris Turner, a musician, a, a Marine veteran. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to our friend, Dr. Sarah Gillum. Now, she is a cognitive scientist specializing in, get this list, event processing, trauma, mental health, psycholinguistics. I, I didn't even know that was actually a thing before talking with her, and metric construction. She's worked in academic, government, hospital, and industry settings, and is featured in the Crosswinds documentary, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, Honoring the Code, which deals with moral injury, guilt, and shame. Now, Sarah, right now, incredibly talented, incredibly smart, is in the process of becoming a licensed mental health counselor, recently finished working on an intensive outpatient program, serves as an alternative to inpatient care, uh, and she'll probably do some follow-up after hospitalization for mental behavioral health issues. An incredible array of service. Now, for our purposes here too, I want you to know that Sarah is the spouse of a retired U.S. Army Colonel. Her husband served 33 years as an armor officer with five deployments. And she and her family, they share openly their experience with combat-related PTSD, with moral injury, and they do so with, with transparency in an effort to just break the stigma to help others find a path towards health and healing and by showing people, hey, we did it, it wasn't easy, but we made it and, and sometimes we're still working on it and you can make it too. So if you have a spouse or a partner struggling with PTSD, with guilt, with shame, with moral injury, Sarah has some sound advice that I want you to listen for in this talk. Um, and it's the kind of advice that you really can only get from real-world experience, not, not just from textbooks, even though those are valuable, not from classrooms and professional training, even though that is much needed and is an astounding resource that we want to lean on. There's a degree of, of something that she can impart to you because of those trainings that she has, because of the degrees that she has, but also from walking the actual terrain. Looking at the map is different than walking down the trail. So some of her tips are gonna include, just listen for things like this. Uh, number one, realizing that the person isn't the issue. Rather, they're struggling with an issue and you can help them. So it's, it's taking the focus off them and focusing on what's really happening. They're, they're not your enemy. Number two, expressing your willingness to walk and work with them. And that's important. I'm gonna to express to you, hey, I'm gonna walk with you. I can't do it for you, but I'm here. And that diffuses the anxiety that many people have about owning an issue on their own. Once they know that, hey, I've got you in my corner, they feel more secure and you can step forward together. 
listen for the story of how she confronted, at the time they weren't even married, but how she confronted her husband graciously about, hey, you're broken. Okay, number three, do get help from other places and let your spouse or loved one, let them connect with others. In fact, encourage it. This this includes other professionals and includes other friends with whom they can walk. It It's the reality that you can't carry the weight of this alone. And even if you could, even if you were strong enough, which you're not, they need more than what you alone can provide. Advice tip number four, don't pour from an empty cup. Self-care, super important. Number five, go holistic. I've got six of these. I want you to listen for the go holistic type thing. That is, she's gonna say something very practical. Get enough sleep. Look at your nutrition. It's a given that kids who don't get enough sleep or kids who eat horribly, they have trouble just managing normal life every day. The same is true of adults, especially when trauma and hard times are involved. So go holistic and do some simple things that you can take care of that cost you absolutely nothing. Number six, here's the final one. See trauma as an opportunity to grow. Post-traumatic growth is a real thing, she says. You're, you're not stuck. It's not easy, but you can walk through it. You can do it. And even though we don't want to face trauma when it comes, and it does come, we can choose how we respond and we can emerge stronger. Again, easier said than done, but, but listen for the tips that she has. Now, in this talk too, Sarah's gonna to define PTSD, she's gonna talk about moral injury, she's gonna define grief, shame, guilt, some other terms, traumatic brain injury. Those are things that we've talked about before in different episodes of the podcast, and I'll put some links to those in the show notes down below. But I, but I highlight them because sometimes it's important to listen to it from a different perspective. And most of the time when I'm talking, it's it's a male perspective and I'm not a professional. My background is very different. And so when you bring a female in like Sarah, that brings you another layer of perspective. And when you bring in a female that has professional training, that brings in another layer of perspective. And so it's beautiful to be able to stack up how different people see the same thing. And these are in, agree- in agreement but there's just another deeper layer of communication that she's offers here. Okay, this is our friend Sarah. And by the way, Sarah wrote the foreword for our book, Hope for the Warrior Family, that just came out and listen out in the beginning for how that foreword accidentally happened. And yet it is awesome. Here's my talk with Sarah Gillum. Sarah is featured in one of our documentaries and talks about moral injury and post-traumatic stress disorder, has a unique story all of her own and related to her family. Um, And here's one of the reasons I reached out to her is recently, uh, Bob Waldrop and I, he's the founder of Crosswinds. We put together the book, Hope for the Warrior Family, and we we reached out to Sarah because of past experience with her on that documentary and, and said, hey, Sarah, could you read this, review this, see if this information is good and helpful, give us a review that we can put on the back of the book, inside the book, on the website, all of this. And Bob called me the next day and he said, hey, uh, Sarah's like come back and she's got some great suggestions, which we totally integrated. And she, she wrote us this review, but Sarah, when you wrote, you wrote like this little bitty two, three sentence review. 
And then also you wrote us like this two to three page thing. And Bob <laughs> said, like, this needs to be the foreword for the book. Like, this is a great intro wow. because she has experience in this area. And so um, with that, I thought we, we got to reach out to her because we're about to release that book. And let's just let her share her story again and talk to her about this whole thing about how uh, war deployment, all of it, some of the issues that come up, questions that come up affect family. So Sarah, thank you for the review for the book that you didn't know was going to turn into an intro <laughs> and thanks <laughs> for the time here today. So um, when, I, when I got on the Zoom, you were telling me in a sense like how this had affected you personally, deployment. So just start telling me that story. Oh, goodness. First, thank you for having me and allowing me to be part of this effort. It's a much needed effort. And second, it's, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, I know we were talking earlier, and one of the things that's hard to do is to help someone own up and get out of denial when they're facing problems with trauma and with moral injury and maybe even some traumatic brain injury, especially in the space of a warrior, because that's the opposite of strength in a lot of people's minds, which isn't true. And that narrative needs to change. But I know when I was dating my husband, I recognized um, my best friend, he was my best friend for 34 years, died due to traumatic stress complications. And I couldn't help him in that space. It, it was very horrible. So when I started dating my husband, I recognized it. And I thought, wow. And we got into a fight one night and I just said, look, you're broken. And he was rather high ranking and he said to me, I am not broken. How dare you say that to me? Do you know who I am? And then he listed off his rank and accomplishments and this, that and the other and all of his strength based features. And I said, no, let me tell you how you're broken. So I listed it out as clearly as I could list it. And, and I said, tell me you're not broken. And he just literally fell to the floor. Tell and me like up. maybe one or two of the things that might've been on that list, like that would be say not specific to him, but would be common that other people who are listening might see in a loved one. Oh goodness. Um, Family issues. Um, I'm not the first wife in this situation, so there's a lot of space in that. And that's common. Like when you go to a medical clinic, they have codes for each spouse and child. So they even spend more time with you, front loading questions on do you feel safe at home? Because they suspect by the second or third or sometimes fourth or fifth wife that there's traumatic stress involved or a mental health issue. Um, so there's family problems, there was emotional reactivity to things that were trivial, obvious sleep pattern problems. Somebody who just is always up, never sleeps, always drinking Red Bulls, always out, um, always trying to look strong, constantly working out, but just burning the candle at both ends. Um, and not really there sometimes and checking out yeah. often. Um, there's just a myriad of symptoms and some are so trivial, but when you experience them, you know, something isn't right. And, um, he did recognize, okay, yeah, I think I have a problem. And he said, you are the first one 
who's been honest with me. And he said, don't leave. And this is what you guys were, you were dating. You were not. We were dating. Yeah. And I, you know, at the time I had every right to be angry. Although, you know, you kind of say, oh, should I have expressed my anger that directly? But in this case, I think it was a God thing. He needed somebody to say, you're not okay. And it's not okay that you're not okay. And we need to fix that. And to have somebody tell him, you need to admit or look yourself in the mirror and say, there's something wrong and let's work on that. And I think for warriors, it's extremely hard because you have, you buy into this framework of I am strong, I am undefeatable, go, go, go. So to take a step back and say, oh, there's some things that I have to fix to be whole or to have a good relationship with my family or with others is very difficult. Okay, so it seems like right there, uh, and and I know we just kind of launched right into the deep end of the pool right here. It's (laughs) like what you offered when when you had a, a, a loved one that is now your spouse um, and just so everybody knows, like we we did get his permission to talk this freely. So yes, you know, kind of <laughs> we did. so she was like, let me let me go ask him if I can, you know, go there. And he and he was very gracious. He said, yeah, absolutely. Um, it seems like you offered not just the I'm going to overlook these issues that are going on, n- nor did you offer the I'm just going to leave. Like there. And that's so often what people get is they get one option is we just overlook it, piece at any cost. Option number two is we just fight, which may be flight. I'm gone. But you kind of got this third option, which is like, hey, okay, so there are some concerns, but I love you and I will walk, I will walk this journey with you, but you got to walk the journey too. Like, I'm, does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's absolutely what is needed. And I think, Trauma is necessarily event-based, as is traumatic brain injury, as is moral injury. So there's an event, sometimes that is not whole in memory, that's causing them pain or grief. And sometimes it's a multiple series of events that happens. And they may not be able to verbalize it. And it often lives in the body. So that reactivity, they may react without even thinking because there's a cue or a trigger that cues that. So instead of trying to go around it, which does nobody any good, or leaving, which leaves them even more emotionally vulnerable and judged, you have to look the demon in the face, name it, call it by name and say, you know what, I'm bigger than this demon, I can face you, I am a warrior and I'm going to go through you. And if you can be supportive in that fight, non-judgmental and just caring and stay out of the way, try to help them find what are my triggers? What sets me off? Is it loud noises? It is particular types of smells. Is it being in a space like Walmart where it's uncontrolled and there's so many unknowns and people that I don't know milling about um, and I feel vulnerable? What are my triggers? What sets me off? How can I deal with those triggers? How can I help get through this set of past events and come out the other end stronger? And I think that's the number one thing that needs to change in this space is the broken warrior narrative needs to go. Um, There's so much literature and just suggestiveness around the idea that if you have post-traumatic stress or if you have moral injury or if you have 
traumatic brain injury, you're damaged and you're broken. And that's just not the case. Um, and people also see that as if you're depressed or you have chronic anxiety, that you're also damaged in some way, or you have past sexual trauma or abuse in your life. Um, the broken warrior narrative in general just needs to go. And don't allow that narrative to enter your cognition if you're a family member at all. Post-traumatic stress is a normal reaction to an event that's extreme. So is moral injury. You violated your values, your beliefs. You've witnessed something that's really hard to digest. It's healthy to have a reaction to that. You're throwing out some terms right there that I think we, we've talked about before, um, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to maybe define them sure. really quickly, just so that everybody can catch up. If they've not listened to previous talks or previous episodes that we've had, uh, we actually talked about moral injury and defined that back in episode number three. And then we talked about post-traumatic stress back in episode number two. I'll put links to those down in the show notes. Um, but like for your purposes here, um, give us kind of the, 60 second version of defining post-traumatic stress because people every, everybody has a different way of looking at that and, and you just said something that i think resonates with with how we present it is that post-traumatic stress it's actually more normal that you would be affected by these extreme violent events yeah, like it would be abnormal to not be affected by them so maybe just kind of in your own language define post-traumatic stress. And then I want to do two other words real quick. Okay. I'll try to give you the short version, which kind of borders on clinical, but it should be easily to digest. Um, post-traumatic stress is a collection of symptoms. And any mental health disorder, that's all it is, is it's a collection of symptoms that's given a name. So a person is not their disorder. A person is not post-traumatic stress. My husband is not post-traumatic stress. He exhibits it. He experiences this set of symptoms. That makes sense because so like a person is not cancer. A person is not a broken leg. A person yes. has those symptoms. Has a broken leg. Yeah, okay. And once you externalize that, you realize this is treatable. This is temporary. We can get through this. And that's huge. When people start to not identify a person as you're weak, you're sick, you have this problem, but instead identify a person as, you have a collection of symptoms that's defined as this for communication purposes. Now let's work on what we can do to alleviate those symptoms or to help get through them and get past your demons. So some of those symptoms um, or that collection is defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, fifth edition for the psychology side of things. Yeah. For the medical side of things, which is your psychiatrist and your medical doctors, they have what's known as the ICD-10. And that's what you're gonna see if you go to medical building, billing sites or you're talking to clinics. And that's the 10th revision of the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, okay? And that's put out by the World Health Organization, which by now everybody's heard of with COVID. Yeah, you got a bunch of foes of the World Health Organization, but that is the term, and that's what we're... Yes, yes. And both of those entities diagnose based on a collection of symptoms that are very similar. So with the DSM-5, you have first a stressor. 
So something that you've experienced, you've witnessed, maybe direct witnessing, or you may have seen it, you know, indirectly by learning a close relative um, witnessed a suicide of somebody they knew. Um, it can be repeated in extreme indirect exposure or direct. It can be professional or job related. The second symptom is intrusion symptoms. And what that means is like when all of a sudden you're flooded with memories of a horrible event and you can't control it. It's intrusive. It's intruding in your everyday life. And that can cause nightmares, flashbacks, um, prolonged distress where you're constantly wrapped up, wrapped up in yourself thinking, oh, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Almost like a panic attack. And those are, people are pretty familiar with what panic attacks are. Um, so you have physiologic reactivity when you have a trigger. So, um, for example, people have been around a lot of mortars or yeah. a lot of firearms. You don't want your child to go back and sneak up behind dad and bang their hands really fast to say, oh, look at me, because they're going to hit the floor. They're going to have reactivity as a combat veteran. And that's going to be kind of that intrusion. Um, a third set of symptoms is persistent and effortful avoidance. So, okay, when I go to Walmart, I feel all these feelings and emotions, it's uncontrolled, and I feel like I need a gun in my hand, and I know that in uncontrolled large areas that are open, bad things happen, so I'm not going to go to Walmart. And if my wife's nagging me about going to Walmart, well, she's just going to have to nag because I'm not doing it. <laughs> so I'm going to avoid all these tasks on my list that involve places like that, um, which in vivo therapy involves sometimes taking veterans to places like Walmart so that you can face those stressors a little bit at a time. Um, another set of symptoms is negative cognitions or moods. So you're depressed. Um, you're interest is diminished in things you normally want to do like going to the movies for example i used to love going to the movies and now i can't stand it because again that's an open space um, and alterations in arousal and reactivity reckless behavior a lot of veterans get on motorcycles and just drive at ungodly speeds because there is such a thing as addiction to arousal um, when you come out of, of a combat zone and all those things play a part, hypervigilance, like always being just absolutely ramped up and ready to go, exaggerated startle responses, like you snap and somebody hits the floor just because you've snapped your fingers and it was unexpected and they weren't ready for it. So with family members, like when my husband came back from combat after he'd been diagnosed, we sat down with the kids and had a talk, like, you know, no loud noises. If you know you're going to make a loud crashing sound and it's necessary, tell your dad first. Prepare him. Say, hey, I, I need to know this is going to happen in this space. Do you need to leave? What do you need to do? Um, and that can help. And those are triggers. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So, so you're saying like one of the, it seems to me like one of the best things people can do about this is, is back to kind of where we started with your story was you guys had that moment where you where you actually just confront it and you talk about it and you get the elephant in the room out front but it seems like the way to continue moving forward is also hey these are some issues walmart's an issue you know uh loud noises are issues you know the fourth of july just happened as of the date we're recording this yeah. my neighbor across the street my goodness like they must have bought out 
it, it was excessive. They must have bought out an entire fireworks store. Um, <laughs> that that's an issue, you know. So it's getting that stuff forefront to where. And you said something. This was very beautiful about judging, and you said not judging the person, but yet it seemed like you're saying, "Hey, we judge the issue, not the person. We just." And, and once we have the issue and the issue becomes the thing, we love the person. Let's deal with the issue, but you got to talk about it. Like you can't hide it. It, 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 it does seem like I'm on the right track. Absolutely. All right. So and I think all efforts to hide it are just going to lead to an increased intensity of symptoms more of it and anxiety as well as depression. And then you're at an increased risk for suicidal intentions and behaviors like that like you know the relationships that should be the closest you know spouse uh significant other even family in the safest place that you should have like that becomes i mean all of a sudden you're hiding there you know there's this goodness like i hate to go from like clinical definitions to the rapper eminem but there's yeah. an episode in eight mile where, you know, they're, they're battling off and they're, they're doing this rap battle where what they try to do is insult each other. And the person yeah. insults the other one, the worst or, you know, the best in their mind, but gets the biggest dirt on the other one. He wins the rap battle. And so Eminem as the, you know, person that's opposing the champ, he has to go first and then the champ can try to upend him. And so he steps up there and what he does in his rap is instead of insulting the other guy, he actually outlays all of the dirt on himself. He's poor. He lives in a, yeah, I mean, according to this story, he lives in, you know, in a rundown home. His girlfriend cheated on him with one of the other guys that's at the rap battle. He's a race. I mean, he lists every single issue that that guy could possibly make fun of and it disarms it. And it disarms it because he gets the dirt out there and then he tosses the mic to the other guy and he says, now tell them something they don't know. And the guy's just like, he's dumbfounded. Like there's <laughs> nothing more to say. And, and he just kind of walks off in shame because the stuff that should have shamed Eminem, he's put it out front and center and said, okay, like I'm not the issue. Those are the issues. And I, and I guess like to kind of bend it to what we're talking about is the true freedom is not found in hiding to where everything looks tidy. The true freedom is getting all the dirt out there to where there is nothing to hide. Absolutely. So walking in the open with people that are up close to you. Um, talk Absolutely. to about moral injury. Um, moral injury is related to post-traumatic stress directly. Um, those two are tied together because often what causes moral injury is a trauma okay. that you feel stressed about. However, they are different. Um, the term moral injury was coined and defined by a psychiatrist, Jonathan Shea, back in the 90s, and later re-envisioned by a gentleman named Brett Litzt. And it's kind of to capture what mental health diagnoses don't. So this okay. isn't something you're going to find in the DSM-5 or even in the ICD-10. It is something that exists. It is something that needs to be treated. 
more clinicians are embracing it, but as you walk through this path towards wellness, you're going to find that not many therapists out there are prepared for this or treat it or even know about it. Right. Um, so that said, it has a lot to do with trauma or a situation that's accompanied by feelings of guilt, shame, self-condemnation, loss of trust, loss of meaning, and spiritual struggles. And this includes grief. And I think a lot of people leave out grief as an experience in trauma. But survivor's guilt, for example, is huge for combat veterans because we lose people in, in the field. And um, around 2018, different types of measurement started coming together for moral injury and it's just being tested. So not only is it a little bit hard to define, it's also a little bit hard to assess if somebody has moral injury. But the thing to know is that it centers around feelings of shame and grief usually. And there's a difference, um, shame and guilt that is, and there's a difference between shame and guilt. Shame is, I am wrong and I'm a problem. Shame is never okay. And if somebody's feeling shame, you need to help them realize, okay, you are okay. You're a human being that has value. Um, and if you're Christian, you know, it's important to say you're made in the image of God with a purpose. It seems like that's and the issue with shame them. is it attacks the identity of the person. It does. It's not just an action that happened, but not, not I did or experienced or saw something yes. wrong, but like I am wrong. Like I'm, Yeah. there's something fundamentally wrong with, with who I am. Like I'm. And that is destroyed. absolutely wrong. Yep. Shame is wrong. Just throw it out with the rubbish, (laughs) take it out with the trash and realize what I should be experiencing is guilt. Now there's good guilt and there's bad guilt. Sometimes we feel guilty for things that we shouldn't feel guilty for at all. And we spend all this time, you know, thinking about little tiny things or we blow things up in our mind that are ridiculous. And they seem huge to us, but they're not. And other times we have, in fact, done something or witnessed something for which we need to make amends. And we need to work through with the people who are there, who we feel guilt in that situation about. So there is a course and a way to get through that particular type of guilt. Both of those need to be addressed. But uh, both of those are situational. They are not, I am the problem. Does that make sense? Yes. So shame is, I am a problem. Guilt is, there's a situation that I played a part that's an issue, and I need to own that, and I need to make amends. And so, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we blend it up in our own minds, but other times, yes, we need to make amends and, and repair and make boundaries with other people. And so um, if somebody feels like, is there like a false guilt where they feel guilty of something that was not even under their control? Like you uh, hear stories of um, soldiers who did not deploy or did not go out on a mission and then something happened to the ones who did and they feel guilty. Where, whereas, you know, no, you're not guilty. You, like you, you didn't do anything wrong. You were, you know, does that make sense? Uh, are, are you, every soul yes. that I've spoken to can remember their first kill. And many times 
Which, by the way, is a horrible question if, if you're listening to ever ask any soldier, did you kill anybody? Amen. <laughs> if, they want, if they want to tell you, they'll tell you. Or, or you could just assume if they were on the front lines that that probably happened. Um, but they can tell me instances of when there, there's a, a person open firing on a group of people and they're told to take that person out. And they have to in order to save all these lives. And yet... Yep. And yet they still hesitate and they're commanded over and over and over and over to do it. And then they finally do it and, and they effectively save hundreds of lives, but then still feel guilty because they took the life of one in order to do that, which would kind of be a golly that you accomplished a greater good, but it, it's still, you know, I, I, how do you say it? I thought about this the other day when I was walking to my refrigerator of all things. I don't know why I was <laughs> walking to the refrigerator, but I was thinking, you know, sin is such a black and white issue when you have it on paper, but then you mm -hmm. start understanding people's stories and you think, my goodness, like real life exists in all these shades of gray that are very rarely black and white. Very, very our brains are still black and white. And so we carry all this moral injury and all this stuff. Does, does that make sense? Like what you're saying absolutely. is other things. No, absolutely. And that there's, you know, many stories where somebody had strapped bombs to a child and there is a soldier faced with, yeah, I've got to do something about this or they've armed a child with a gun, an automatic weapon. And you can save hundreds of lives, but you have to eliminate that child. And in our culture, we value children and we value families at right, a different level so. than others. So, yeah. So there's there's a moral injury there if they do what they need to do to save the greater good. There's a huge moral injury there. And for, I'm, I'm not picking on anybody, but there are certain kind of fire and brimstone faiths, faith, as they call them, faith traditions, where if you're not Christian, you're going to hell. And so not only that, if you're in another country and you're looking at a child of another religion, you're thinking to yourself, I sent that child to hell. Oh yeah, I'm not just killing that child. I'm sending them, like it's an eternal decision. Yeah. So the moral injury there is huge and coming home to your own child of that same age and gender and looking them in the face is awful for a soldier knowing that some of their family lost theirs, even though they, they did what they needed to do. Right. And they did for the greater good. And it was in the context of war. It's something that lives with you and it's hard to work through those issues. And a lot of times soldiers want to protect their families. They, they don't want to share those things for obvious reasons, especially like this example is a good one. Um, because imagine coming home and then not wanting to share that with your eight-year-old or not wanting to share that with your wife, who then might think that you're a murderer, you know, and how you work through that issue. And to me, and I think to a lot of soldiers, only another soldier is going to understand that narrative and truly comprehend it. 
And it's important as a spouse and as a family member, sometimes soldiers get home and they've only, you know, been out of combat for two or three days and the wife is already like, why didn't you take the trash out? It's Wednesday and you know this, expecting things are gonna go back to normal. And then he's like, I'm out the door, I'm going somewhere. And he goes to spend time with, with other soldiers, which is good, but the wife's left at home thinking, well, doesn't he still love me? What's happened? Because why isn't he talking to me? Well, A, he's protecting her or the spouse. He doesn't right. want you to feel that pain and to know that because he loves you. Sorry, it's an emotional point. And B, the only people who can really truly understand are the brothers in arms. And I think that's the power of group. Soldiers um, can understand experience of war in a way that civilians can't. We're not there um, as civilians. We can never really truly appreciate the cost. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of spouses, sorry, now that I'm getting my voice back, I got emotional there, but in terms of spouses, it needs to be known that if they're home, initially they don't want to spend time with you, allow them to have that time with their brothers in arms. They need it for healing. It's crucial. And it's okay if they, you know, need to take some distance from you, but do everything you can to help shape that into a healthy experience. Because what you don't want is somebody who's struggling, who goes out drinking every night and is helped up on red bulls and not getting any nutrition. Um, nutrition and sleep are key to healing anything. So you need to prioritize nutrition of the person that you love so that they can make neurotransmitters and the chemicals they need for sleep, for memory consolidation and for healing. And in addition, alcohol does nobody any good <laughs> in general. Like one or two beers hanging out with the guys, that's okay. Offer to host the event at your house. Um, make sure that they're eating something and that they're getting some nutrition and offer them a six pack and cut it off there, you know, so that there's six beers or six guys that each have one, you know, make sure they're there for an hour or two if necessary to make sure they're good to drive, take their keys try to keep it healthy if there's any spiritual outlet no matter what faith tradition you are that's safe if you have a chaplain that you can go to make use of that but try as hard as you can to help them find their path so let's go back to your story and and that's some very practical things that people can do right there is you mentioned nutrition you mentioned sleep so often people think that it's only clinical stuff and that's all necessary. So don't mishear that, but, but it's also a lot of practical things. Um, what, what you eat and getting enough rest and other very practical issues and Red Bull is probably won't do anybody <laughs> any good at any time anyway, either. Um, let me go back to the beginning when, you were dating your husband. He had already been deployed. Yes. Um, and then he went back. And it, 
pick up in the story, like at what point did you guys get married in there? And then when, when did he redeploy? Oh, he has five year long combat deployments. And then he has little mini deployments, a number of them, like a few months here and there in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, we did three year long and about four mini deployments together. Um, I think the first of his was to Iraq that we were together and then two in Afghanistan and then a whole bunch of mini <laughs> deployments. Um, I realized something was wrong and I knew something was wrong. I just didn't know what it was. And I, I figured it was traumatic stress from war. Um, but you never know. And I'm, at that point in time, I wasn't a clinician. I hadn't educated myself, which family members and spouses, you need to educate yourself. Know the triggers, know the signs, know the symptoms so that you can then communicate about them. That's how you get through them. Um, but in that space, it was just really hard to know what to do. And we were getting to know each other. So, you know, after going through one deployment together, we were at a restaurant in Rhode Island and all three of our children were there, two of two are step, my stepchildren, and one is our shared child. And there was an issue, <laughs> of all things, with taking a takeout box. And he just lost it over the fact that even though we ordered the takeout box to begin with, we didn't need to take that home because it wasn't nutritious and it wasn't going to feed the kids. And he raised his voice and it wasn't abusive, but his cognition was out of whack. I could tell something was wrong. And he raised his voice enough that people from the other tables had looked up and the restaurant was getting quiet and we were exiting the restaurant. So when my kids were out the door and the door closed enough, I looked at him and I said, I don't care what you have to do. You're getting help now. You're getting professional help you've got an intense problem. And that was his first um, individual counseling session. How many years? Uh, so you guys were dating and when you were dating, you, you said the whole you're broken comment. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. okay. And so, and, and then you just said, okay, we had, you know, the stepkids and then a shared child uh, you're out to eat. So that, that means like you got a, you got a distance of time there. Yes. Like, between the initial you're broken and between the first time he goes to get counseling. So how, how long was that and what happened between all there? Um, and, and I'm bringing that up because a lot of times, you know, there are probably people listening who, you know, they, they might tend to listen to your story and just getting kind of the highlight reel. Um, if, if we could even call, call it, call it that of this journey yeah. on just a, a short recording, they might be thinking, Oh, well, of course she did it. Like, She's got professional credentials and, you know, her oh, husband yeah, is, those didn't come till later. <laughs> this was an easy, this was easy. But like what we're saying is no. there, was, there was time that transpired between all of this. Oh, absolutely. There was about two years from, and, and there's a lot in that space that has to be unpacked. Like I knew there was a problem. I knew it was possibly traumatic stress. Um, I knew my husband was advanced in rank and an officer. Um, yeah. I know, knew there was a stigma attached and that he had children to provide for. So 
who was I to tell him that he had to get help when that can endanger his job, his security Cause it, cause clearance? It really could. I mean, a lot of times if they say, hey, I need some help. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know what does that mean? One time, this is not even the same. He was a pastor um, at, at not even at a church, at a local missions organization. And oh, he had back surgery. He got prescription painkillers. And then he started using them too much. And about 60 days into using them too much, he went to the board and said, hey, like, I need help. This is becoming an issue. And he's thinking that they're going to say, oh, okay, thank you for telling me. He's just trying full disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Like, he's trying to be honest. And they fire him. It, and yeah. Like, this is a religious group who said they're going to walk with people. Soldiers face that at even a higher level. Absolutely. The stigma is absolutely real. And I was new to the military environment. I'd worked as a civilian, as a human factors engineer um, for a while. Um, And been out in the field running exercises with the military but that's very different thing i wasn't in a combat zone and i was just learning all of this and then i was learning about the structure and organization and hierarchy and how that worked and then seeing all the mental health issues and looking at you know my best friend and what he went through and then you know who was i to tell my husband what to do or not to do in the beginning until it came to a point where it's like this isn't workable okay so you have a family under these circumstances um, I'm, so I'm imagining you guys in the door there and you tell him, Hey, you're getting help. Does he just, yeah. does he just like, okay. Or is there some kind of, there was, I think, I think there was a recognition because he looked back at the people in the restaurant who were all staring at him with yeah. blank faces. And I think the levity of that moment just hit him because he didn't say anything and he was very quiet in the car and we were all quiet in the car till we got home. It wasn't a long ride, but he picked up the phone the next day and um, said, I need counseling. Yeah. And the good thing was he was at the Naval War College at the time as an army person. So there was an opportunity there um, to say, "I'm, I'm not in my own cohort. So I think that was helpful for him because later after that, we ended up at Fort Hood and he reported and went in and said, okay, I need to continue my um, PTSD counseling. And they said, oh, Colonel, I'm, I'm pretty sure you have a problem with anxiety. That's what I heard you say. He said, no, no, I have post-traumatic stress disorder on my record. I need counseling for this. So he's and owning he's like, it. Like oh. even while he's, I mean, he's leading. Yeah. He's, yeah, so yeah. at some point, like what you've pointed out to him, like he's totally owned. Yeah. And he's, he's had therapy yeah. now for a year. He's had healing. He's overcoming. He's feeling terrific. And he just um, wants to keep on. And, and that's important because I think yeah, yeah. a lot of people have this stigma that going to counseling or mental health is about what's wrong with you. And at some point, like it had to shift to where now it's becoming about what's right with him. Just like, I mean, it's just like when you go to the gym, when you go into the gym, there's so many people that are fit that are still at the gym. It would make sense that counseling would be the same way that there would be people who are so far down the journey in health that are still at the counseling that, that are still oh, absolutely. out the health and holding as your husband was. 
My yeah. husband, we were joking about it the other day because he said, I, I think it's kind of like cleaning your floors. The first time you move into a place, you don't know what the ick is and it's grody and you got to clean the floor off and it's it's painful and it's like, ugh, that's gross. And you get it all out and you get it all done and you're so happy with it and you feel good being in that clean area. Everything's tidy how you want it. You're like, yes, I found it. And you have, you know, in terms of mental health, that's that moment of strength. Like I've overcome, I'm stronger than I was before which is post-traumatic growth, it does happen. And yeah. people need that narrative that there's healing, but there's always dust in the air. And, you know, people do have setbacks. They're re-triggered by a traumatic event in their current life. And they have to take a few steps back and clear up that dust that's on the floor again. But this time it's not as big of a job. You've already swept it and cleaned it once. It's just a little bit of dust and you routinely go in there and keep it clean and life is good. You remain strong. And it was a, kind of a funny narrative. And I thought, wow, that makes it sound so easy. And after watching, you know, all he went through. still yeah. cleaning their house, right? Like they don't, Yeah. nobody stops cleaning the house after they move in and go, oh, we've only got all the dust out. Like people still, Yeah. and it's still, it still, it makes sense. Um, and I, I, I will admit, you know, in this space, and I will fully admit that his rank was an issue in getting us help. That it was, um, that it was an issue why he would not want to, or it was an issue of him having easier access to it? Both. There was less access. Okay, less access. And more stigma. I mean, the yeah. higher up the rung you go. Okay, because, yeah, you, you go up higher in rank. I'm, I'm, ego tends to go up, expectation goes <laughs> up, go. Yeah, and I was telling that statement that, you know, the person at the hospital made, oh, you know, you're at this rank. I'm sure I heard you say anxiety because people at this rank don't have that problem. And I'd be, I'm sure you could say, yeah, a lot, a lot of us. <laughs> And then to not be heard in that moment is he came home just in disbelief. And I was like, what, what just happened? I was like, who was this? Give me their name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in this fight. I'm on it. <laughs> right. Wow. Jeez. Uh, so what other parts of the story are, are there any that you want to fill in? And then I want you to tell me like maybe just practical things that, other family members, loved ones out there should know? Oh, there's, there's so much. Um, I will tell you, I think the important part of this story and the important part of the message that needs to get out that's not out there is traumatic stress can be a really good thing. And I know mm -hmm. that sounds crazy and I know it sounds horrible, but it isn't an opportunity for transformation. Trauma is not fun. The stress that comes after it that feels like it's pulling you apart is not fun. Any kind of struggle or grief is not fun. But in our suffering, we find opportunities for transformation and you can transform into something stronger, into something better. You can have a clearer picture of who you are as a result of that. And the good news is once you've identified it and you've named your demons, you have the opportunity to transform in a way that can help others. And you have an opportunity to grow 
and be stronger and be a person that you never knew could exist on the other side of that. It's called post-traumatic growth. It is a very real thing and you can give back and it's some people on the other side of it say that they would never take back their trauma because it's given them so much. And I know that sounds crazy, but I think the reason we don't hear it more often is because the stigma exists and so many people live in denial and they live in fear and they live with all that yuck and they go down this prescription path and they never get the healing that they need. And it's unfortunate. That makes so much sense though, because like what you just said, because whether or not you deal with it, the event or events that cause the trauma happens and you've still been affected by it. So if the symptoms never arise and you never deal with it, you're not going to grow. You're still, you're going to basically be blinded to something that's affecting your entire outlook. So like to use it in your story, if your husband doesn't have a, an episode when you're out to eat at dinner and they have the thing about takeout that you realize, okay, something more is going on than just the takeout. If he doesn't have that symptom, that symptom is just alerting you to a deeper issue that's going on. You're never going to see the deeper issue. And so he's not going to grow and transform and change and have all this healing and have this journey that you guys, you guys have had. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I worked at um, a place as a researcher for behavioral health that had traditional and non-traditional treatments like biofeedback, acupuncture, Reiki, massage, as well as your standard, you know, cognitive processing therapy. Yeah. And when warriors would spend six months in treatment and come out the other side, they were like, I want to be a clinician. I want to go out and help. I now am able to empathize. I'm in control of my emotions for the first time in my life. I'm feeling things I never felt. I'm experiencing things in the world that are amazing. And I want to share this. Right. But had I not had the trauma, I would never be here. And had I not gone through that, and excuse the word hell, but had I never experienced that hell, I would never be here. And I wouldn't be able to help others and to see how others are hurting and to see the beauty in the world in transformation. That makes sense. Um, yeah. what, what else would you say to families? Okay, so no, the first one was trauma is really an opportunity for transformation. Absolutely. And I think for spouses, um, there's so much. So first, that broken warrior narrative that we've already discussed needs to go. This needs to be reframed as resilience and strength and recreating a narrative of transformation towards something wonderful. And that impacts not only the individual and the family and helps them through future traumatic events, but it also helps the military. Because if you manage to stay in the military, you can then pick out the people who are affected because nobody better than a soldier who's been affected to say, hey, that guy is having an issue and I've been there and help and provide necessary you know, outlets for growth for them. And that leads to a stronger fighting force, which is what we need. We need a strong, mentally healthy fighting force in our military. So we need to rethink how we're doing things so that we can keep ourselves safe. So when my husband goes into combat, I want the person next to him have his head screwed on right so that nothing bad happens to him. And the only way that's gonna change is if we change the stigma and we work towards being healthier and stronger. 
for family members, for, for children, self-care is absolutely fundamentally necessary. And I can't stress that enough. You cannot pour from an empty, empty cup. You can't control things. You can't make your spouse want to get treatment. <laughs> you can't, you know, there's, you can't fix your spouse. It takes a village and it takes a lot of extra help. And you need to find who those people are and who is safe on that path. And with that goes codependent thinking. Sometimes in trying to control things and to control how we're seen and to make things better, control becomes love. And that's bad. So when you find yourself saying, I see you're mad and it must be my fault, um, you're thinking codependently. The thought should be, I see that you're mad. Do you need to talk later? Make it into an opportunity. Don't try to control it. Don't try to own it yourself. It's not your problem if they're mad. Give it an opportunity to talk later and do something with that. If you find yourself saying, I'll help you now and I'll wrestle with my needs and my resentments and my exhaustion due to you later, um, that's not okay either. That's against self-care. You need to say, I want to help you, but I have limits. Know your limits. Know how you can help. Know your boundaries so that you can stay healthy for your children, for your family, and for the person who needs healing with you. Um, I can fix this or save you. No, you can't. As a spouse or family member, no, you can't. I will sit with this discomfort with you. And that's a ministry of presence. Sometimes all people really need is for us to be there non-judgmentally and just be. No judgment, just let them be, and that's healing. That, that circles back to kind of where you started on the whole journey, which was, you know, I'm not going to fix this, but I'll yeah. do it with you. It's, I mean, it's kind of like, it reminds me of Job's friends in the book of Job. You know, everything's going really well while they're just kind of coming up and sitting in the ash heap with Job and saying, hey, I'm yeah. here, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm here. Once they start talking, the whole book just takes a downhill slide. Yeah. There's probably a lesson in there somewhere. Amen. And I, I think another, another big one for spouses is I don't want to risk losing or upsetting you, so I'll stuff my feelings. So I'll just avoid it. And the message needs to be, I can respect your feelings, but I'm going to honor my own. I'm going to let you know I'm mad. I'm going to let you know this isn't okay. I'm going to let you know I have boundaries and I have needs and I need to take care of myself so we can manage the situation. And I imagine you Which could goes, better. Like a lot of people would say, well, my spouse would never listen to that. But I, I imagine <laughs> you can do that better and easier if you've already showed a degree of unconditional grace to them. Absolutely. Like, and this is all about grace. If you've already called out the issue on them, like, like, I mean, like you guys had when you're dating, you, you know, you're, your guy there and said, Hey, okay, here's some issues. I'll walk with you. Well, well then later on you can, you can say I'm mad and I'm mad. I'm mad at what you did, you know, because like he are, he already knows that he has you. That you're <laughs> yep. and, if, and, if, and if he doesn't know that, and if people don't know that you're for them, then all of a sudden when you raise up an issue that could be emotional, there is an instant wall that gets built. But absolutely, goodness, why would this man build a wall against you? Because you've already, you've already seen him at his, his presumed worst and already said, look, you got me. I'm in your corner. I'm for you. Yep. That's absolutely. a big difference. 
that's a huge difference. Um, and I, I think with building walls and with really seeing people for who they are, that goes with managing expectations. A lot of people think, oh, my husband's going to go off to war. He's going to come back. He's all in one piece. Everything's going to be happy. We'll just restart as things were. War necessarily changes a person, period. So you're never going to get back the same person who left. It's just not going to happen. It's not just a, What's a one-year pause on the relationship or whatever. No, 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 no. It's back. not. And it, it's funny to me. I was an exchange student. So when I went on an exchange student um, year, I came back and people were like, oh, how did you change? What did you learn? But when people go off to war, they don't come back to people saying, how did you change? What did you learn? What was that culture like? There's no discussion. It's like you just have to pick up and be the same person they were, which oh, is not well, going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you can choose as a spouse and a family member to recognize this person's grown and changed. So have I. And that may not have been good either. <laughs> you know. So yeah. let's now combine our respective growth and change, recognize it, own it and grow together. So manage your expectations that you're going to transform and grow alongside. You're not going to go back to something that existed before. Um, and then know what you're dealing with. Educate yourself. PTSD, traumatic brain injury, which is often mistaken for PTSD. Um, ask your husband, you know, did you have any bonks to the head? It's a simple question. And did you have any accidents? Traumatic brain injury. That was one, you know, earlier I'd said there were three terms I wanted you to define. Um, oh, one, yeah. <laughs> one of them was moral injury. Traumatic brain injury was the third. Um, and my assumption on that is, whereas PTSD is probably more, again, just overly simplified, emotional, moral injury, yes. overly simplified, spiritual, traumatic brain injury, again, overly simplified, physical. Um, may, maybe give us the quick i'll try to give you the the cliff's notes um so it's it's basically when you knock out or black out for more than 30 minutes at a time or you have memory loss or confusion for hours days or weeks or you have abnormal brain scan or mri or some kind of imaging of your brain um will tell you those That'll tell you if you have traumatic brain injury. And basically it's because you've had a bump to the head. Um, there's closed head injuries, which are caused by a blow or jolt to the head that does not maybe penetrate the skull. Um, and that can be a car accident or, or a bump like whiplash. You can have traumatic brain injury with whiplash. Or there's, you know, a penetrating head injury, shrapnel. ID explodes. A friend of mine has a lot of shrapnel throughout one side of his face that entered into his brain. So that's another type of traumatic brain injury. Um, so common signs and symptoms, headaches, changes in sleep, dizziness, balance problems, fatigue, sexual dysfunction, seizures, sensory changes. So like your taste changes, your smell changes, you don't have any smell. Um, loss of strength. Those are physical. There's many more. Um, cognitive issues, confusion or agitation, which you see in PTSD too, a lot of these you'll notice, or moral injury. Um, attention problems, memory problems, difficulty making decisions, like you can sit in front of the candy machine for an hour debating which candy bar you want, whereas before you might have made decisions quick, you know. <laughs> um, difficulty with speech and kind of slowed thinking. Everything takes a little bit longer to take in and get emotional symptoms, 
depression, anxiety, irritability, impulsivity, mood swings, or just acting out something that's out of character. So you can see PTSD, as we know it and as we experience it, is very similar in symptoms, in that collection of symptoms, to traumatic brain injury. The mild and moderate form you can go undiagnosed. It's important to ask the questions because the cognitive decrements, the inability to think and the slowing down of memory can become permanent if they're not treated in a timely fashion. So if there's any chance that this could be a brain injury, immediately attack it. Don't worry about the PTSD. Don't worry about the moral injury aspect. It just go have the brain injury, you know, have the scans done and try to get it taken care of as soon as possible. That's a, that's There's a, no evidence. From become neurological and yes, that's not just. I mean, emotional. I mean that's like if you if you're in a car wreck. The first thing you do is not go get emotional counseling because no. you, you've had a car wreck and people might have died or whatever in that car accident. The first thing you do is you go to the ER and you deal with the physical issue. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard to see with the brain, like if the brain swells and, yeah. you know, there's variations of where you're hit, where the swelling occurs, how long and, and how severe swelling was it looks different. It takes on many different forms, but if there's any chance that there was an injury, head bonk, even whiplash to the brain, take it on immediately it as soon as out. possible. Okay. Yeah, go get it checked out. And don't worry about it. There's physical therapy, there's occupational therapy, speech therapy, counseling. There's even job counseling because sometimes you have to rework what you can do in your job based on what's happening cognitively. And there's cognitive therapy. So there's ways to help you relearn how to think yeah. and go faster like you would have. But you need to do it in a timely fashion. That makes sense. There's a lot of help out there. You were giving us uh, advice for people who had, who were family members or loved ones. Um, yes. You, you mentioned TDI. And I was like, oh, wait, wait, define that. So go, go yeah. back to where you were on. I sent you down a rabbit trail. But oh, no worries. Well, I, I think the point of that was arm yourself with knowledge. Okay. Now, I didn't know what I didn't know, even about military structure and hierarchy and rank, right? So when it was like, oh, there's a stigma and you could lose your job and that's how you fund the family. It's like, well, who am I to tell you what to do in this space? I, I don't know what that looks like or what that means or if you've even thought about being out of the military before right. after you yeah. know, 20 some odd years at that point. So um, arm yourself. No, and in doing so, make connections that are safe. And I recommend that people who are military spouses find friends outside the military in your community and then identify those friends who are safe. If you're part of a faith-based community, that is a great place to go um, and try to get that help. And there's programs there that you might not think are helpful, like Celebrate Recovery. It's a 12-step program for hurts, habits, and hangups. Yeah. Well, guess what? Being a spouse navigating this, you have a few of those along the way I've as well as your own issues. Celebrate recovery. And when I was there, I was shocked to find out that I, I was there as a participant. So just so people that are listening yeah. know. Um, so I'm not saying, oh, go there. I was just there to learn. I'm a fly on the wall. I was there to, to participate. And I, I learned very quickly that I think the stats were 70% of the people that were there and in celebrate recovery as a whole 
are there not for a substance abuse issue. It is an emotional, relational, some other kind of non-substantive type of thing. And so just because you go in there, like, like it's so much fuller and deeper and gets to bigger roots than just the, I, I, I drink three beers type thing. Oh, abs of, absolutely. I mean, I went in because this is my second marriage and I went in after I was divorced, I had two angels come into my life because nobody wants to be divorced. And I had just shut down and they recognized, Ooh, that person needs help. So they sent me to a program. Yeah. And I assumed that this was a divorce care program. So I showed up at this church and I was already pretty guarded. And um, I said, where's the divorce care program? This is a 12 step. And they're like, Oh, there isn't one. This is celebrate recovery. And then I, I remember looking at the guy and going, I'm not an addict. And he's like, who are you looking for? And I told him, he said, she'll be here in a minute. So she came in and she said, sit your butt down. You're in the right place. This isn't about addiction. <laughs> and then later on, I learned the largest addiction we have in the world is an addiction to self. And we're all addicts in that respect. We're all addicted to self. And in fact, sin, St. Augustine um, talked about sin as the the self folding in upon itself, rejecting God, right? We're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of sin. So in my mind, there's two types of people, people who are in recovery and know they need recovery and those who just haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> That's like both groups of like all the people. <laughs> Absolutely. People and um, getting better and becoming more whole and people that are like turning in on themselves and crumbling. Yes, absolutely. And to me, like programs like Celebrate Recovery are wonderful because they provide you with this vertical relationship with God first, and then you sort out the horizontal relationships in your life in a more healthy manner. And that is so fundamentally important um, in my faith, that God comes first. And that is the greatest commandment, actually, um, given to us from Christ. So I think it really helped me to sort things out early on. And without that experience, I don't know how we would have navigated this path or even if my husband and I would have had this path of transformation and healing yeah. in my life. So I'm, I'm grateful. But to the spouses out there, look for opportunities, strong bonds, marriage conferences in the military, which um, help marriages. Yeah. Those are good to get away from your families and really do some work and kind of peel back the layers of what's really going on in our family and our relationships. So take advantage of opportunities, get some friends outside of the military, learn who you can invest trust into. And that's fundamental because you are in a hierarchical system of the military that is competitive for rank so that it can be used against you. I'm just going to say that up front, but no, there are good people at all levels and i mean at all levels well, they're there that's the case everywhere you know anywhere you go in the world anywhere you can find people who are good people who are going to give you a hand up and you can find people who will stab you in the back and Absolutely. that's going to be i mean that's going to be the case in the republican party that's going to be the case in the democrat party that's going to be the case yep. right now for mask wearers and non-mask wearers alike that's going to be the case in the military <laughs> higher ranks it's gonna be the case in the lower ranks you know i mean like anywhere yeah. you go like you can find 
really great people and you can find people that will support your stereotype of why that whatever group of people it is aren't good people at all and should yeah. not be trusted. And okay, were there any more steps that you had for family members? Because if not, I, like, I got one final question for you whenever that comes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I do have one that's of the utmost importance. Um, and that is prescriptions, nutrition, and sleep. 60% or more of our military have orthopedic injuries due to combat and combat veterans. That's just the way it is. So they're on pain medication. Um, that's, that was later the case for my husband after treatment. So we didn't have this issue, but my best friend did have this issue. He had back injuries due to jumping out of airplanes in combat zones, which led him to have prescriptions for what would be considered narcotics. Yeah. When traumatic stress hit him, that became an escape and he started going through his pills a lot faster, which led him down the road to heroin usage. And this is a person from a good family who I grew up with from kindergarten to 12th grade, who was, you know, a teacher of mine. The mother was one of my best friends growing up who helped me in a lot of situations. This was not a kid from the wrong side of the tracks with a lot of problems. This is just a person experiencing pain who needed escape. And even if you're from the wrong side of the tracks, that's okay. You can still be that person, but then you have, more issues on top of that to escape from potentially, right? Well, I think if you experienced a lot the, early on. People that are from the quote right side of the tracks, you know, tend to think that all these issues are from people from the, you know, bad side. Absolutely. And you know, one of my backgrounds is I worked in housing facility for people coming off drugs, off the streets, out of prison, addiction, and at a facility I worked, we had 350 women housed. The majority of the women that were housed there were not from the inner city. They were from the suburbs yeah. in the city in which I lived. And they were soccer moms that yeah. had hooked on prescription painkillers. And Absolutely. what I realized is that the prescription painkillers are synthetics, but they are synthetics of naturally occurring hard drugs. Like not soft drugs, like marijuana is considered a soft drug. Heroin, very hard drug. But when you get the Lotteds and some of the others, th those are synthetics of hard drugs. And so it's an easy leap. There are people that I worked with, even on staff that came to me in our intern program uh, when I was working at a men's facility and a family facility that never had any legal issue at all, grew up on the right side of the tracks and have a surgery from a car accident, completely innocent, get hooked on a prescription, and then all of a sudden it's downhill, they've got legal issues. And oh, so absolutely. And spouses super common and is you were saying watch out for prescriptions because they they can be a tool, but they can also lead you down a a temporary a tool, but they can lead you down a rabbit hole really quick that nobody wants to go down. No, and spouses too have taken their husband's medication. Like yeah. I need an escape, I need a mother's little helper. So be wary of that. And also know that if there's an overage of need in mental health, which happens in VA facilities and in active duty facilities, and you're kicked out to a civilian facility of overflow, the tendency is to over-medicate soldiers because they don't know what to do with them. Right. 
So you're going to come back and have a spouse that may seem almost vegetative because they're hopped up on psychoactive drugs of all different types and painkillers. And you cannot cold turkey that situation. There is a way to step people down from drugs that is correct. If you don't do it correctly, that can lead to suicidal ideation and death. It's very important to know what you're doing. If you feel your spouse is on too much drugs or they're taking too much or they seem vegetative after seeing their psychiatrist, get all the information you can bundled together from every single source. Take it to a pharmacist and say, this is what they're on, this is what they're doing. Take it to another psychiatrist to get a second opinion. Educate yourself and work that space. Help your spouse to the best of your ability. Um, and with that, if you don't know pharmacists, you could just take this list down to Walgreens, right? Absolutely. I mean, like, There's a pharmacist on staff. Just take the issue, take the information, and just say, "Hey, just write it down. Here's the drugs. Tell me, yeah, tell me what I need to know." Absolutely. Okay. And it always helps to get a second, third opinion. And just like in therapy, if you don't like your initial therapist, they're not a good fit. We're people too when we're in, you know, therapists are people too. So find yeah. another one that's a better fit for you culturally, emotionally, and for your husband. If things aren't working for him, say, hey, you thought we need to change therapists for you or we need to find a different outlet. That's okay. It's all a part of the process. Um, nutrition and sleep are key to healing in any situation, any situation. So whatever you do, make sure that your spouse and your family are eating, maximize their nutrition so they can build all the chemicals they need for sleep and all the chemicals they, they can possibly get to combat the effects of traumatic stress on the body and also on the mind and to help them keep from coming down with anxiety disorder and depression and the like all related mental health issues. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> All right, let me give you this. Is, is that is that the list or is that, you got another one? That, I think that's okay. most of the list. <laughs> All right, here's, so I, I'll let people know, like when Sarah jumped on, she's like, oh, I got like five pages of notes I wrote in the last hour. Like, <laughs> of your stuff. And have really, thank you, have gone the time, not just to talk, but to, to really process through this. Let me ask the final question. This is gonna be a, like a really weird question. Um, but, um, it would be, so when you're first, you're dating your now husband that you've been with for several years and yeah. you guys have kids together and you've walked through a lot together and, you know, have a story of healing and hope. And my question is this, and I, I can't figure out which way to ask it. It, it is, it's the right question. Why did you marry him? Or when the relationship started and you saw these issues, what was it that you saw in him um, that caused you to stay? And how would you translate that? Because you didn't have to get married. Like you, you could have just been like, okay, I'm gone. And yeah. how would you like encapsulate that and pass that on to maybe another woman who's young, who has a spouse that's been deployed? Because most of the people that get deployed are men. Like mm -hmm. I, mean, I want to be an equal opportunist and all that, but I mean, part of that is dealing with the facts as they are. Most people that go over are men. So most of the people that are left behind are women that are taking care of small kids. So like what caused you to go, hey, it's actually worth the fight and I'm, I'm going to walk this with you. And what, what would you say that you learned that 
you'd pass on to those women who might be in the same position now that you were years ago? Ooh, I've thought about this a lot <laughs> over the years. Because <laughs> you I do ask your yourself, like, I didn't even, I even why was it. I that crazy? <laughs> but um, it's a good question, and I think it comes down to this. Um, before he had formalized individual counseling, and I... You stayed before he had counseling. Yeah, before that, yeah. I, I really had to look at who he was and what his values were and the man that he was. And underneath all the military bravado and ego is a very heartfelt, genuine person with a lot to give. And I um, was doing research and managed to put together the opportunity for him to do Celebrate Recovery while he was deployed with a clinician friend of mine. And that's by gender, so it's another man. I was not a part of it, and I told him up front, don't want to know, don't need to know, your conversations are yours, that's your domain. Yeah. But at the end of that experience, he came home, really changed in a way that I was not expecting, and I could see that he had ordered his life towards God. And there's a lot of ways and foundations that people can order themselves. They can order themselves towards money. They can order themselves towards accolades. They can order themselves towards fame. Um, but his was really a godly mission, and he had a heart for family, and he had a heart for the soldiers who he led. And he had an intrinsic need to do what was right. Um, and seeing that in a person and seeing how hard they're working to get it right really affects the heart. Yeah. And I, I know that this path, and my husband will tell you, you know, we're 11 and a half years <laughs> along on the path together <laughs> from dating through. Yeah. And um, with ex-wives, stepchildren, the military, um, moving constantly. Seven moves in five years, four of those were cross-country, and then we continued moving. All the stressors of new schools for the kids, and um, it's worth it. It's worth it if you hang in there. And it's worth it for our family. It seems to me then, yeah, I mean, like where, where you just went with that is you were able to do what you started the whole conversation with, which is you kind of separate any issues that the person's struggling with from the person. So the person is yeah. not the issues that they wrestle with. Every, everybody wrestles with stuff. I mean, even, even the person that like is listening, contemplating all the stuff that their spouse who's deployed is struggling with, like everybody has their, I mean, everybody's got baggage. I mean, I remember the other day, my dad was sitting here at the kitchen table. We're talking about some stuff and I'm like, yeah, I mean, like by the time you get to my age, like you got some baggage. And he's like, we all have baggage. <laughs> but some people were able to actually separate the person from the baggage, you know? And uh, I mean, uh, like, I think that's what you probably were able to do because you're, you're married to an incredible guy. 
but everybody's Absolutely. got stuff. Absolutely. And I, I think when we, civilians looking from the outside in to a space of combat soldiers, there's a fear, right? Because you have a stereotype of, oh, they're going to blow, <laughs> you know, or, or something bad's going to happen, or they're violent, which is yeah. not the truth at all. They're very heartfelt people who try to do the right things. They put their pants on one leg at a time like the rest of us. You know, they're people, very heartfelt people. They've been through a lot and give a lot. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And usually their focus is on others, not themselves. And to be able to serve them and to do for them is important. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for, um, for you know, for being in our film. I'll put oh, yeah. that in the show notes where people can grab that. That was years ago. And then, yeah. you know, <laughs> know staying in touch and kind of walking with us and, you know, writing this review for our book um, that turned into the foreword. And then also, uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes too, where people can get that. And then, you know, also for being willing to share your story and you know, oh, yeah. transparent about it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, by people talking about it, it's like the whole thing where I think you and I were talking before I recorded is, you know, in Revelation 12, you see they overcame, you kept referring to demons a lot during this talk. And it, in the end, they say they overcame in Revelation 12, um, they overcame the enemy by the blood of Jesus. So by the past work that was accomplished, um, and he was so far more successful than we even think um, in all areas of life. They overcame by that. And so there's a second thing, and by the word of their testimony, by the word of their story. And ancient rabbis believed that when someone told the story of something that God had done for them, that the, the actual telling of that story released the same power that was present in the story itself to make the event happen. So that, that's why every year they would retell the story of the Passover, because they believed that in the telling of that story, that the same power that calls Pharaoh to finally let the people go and then cause the wind to blow through and blow apart the Red Sea uh, to where the children of Israel could walk through towards freedom, like that that same power was present even just in the telling of that story. And so I think when you tell your story, you know, the good, the bad, the horror, horrible, hard parts, like people see, you know, a power in there that gives them the same hope that, oh, golly, like it happened there. Like it could actually happen for me too. And so thank you for sharing that. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as, as a last comment, and I don't know that this is worthy, but um, hold your scripture. I have um, a couple of scriptures that get me through. One is in Proverbs, lean not on your own understanding, but in all things consider God. That really helps because every now and then when I feel like I need to be in control, I remind myself I'm not in control and that's okay. Yeah. Um, another one is Jeremiah 20 in Jeremiah 29. Um, I know the plans for you. I have a purpose for good. Um, the I in that is God, not me. We're in God's will. 
and my prayer is that I align with God's will, and that has gotten me through so much. Um, and the other one is, my grace is made stronger in your weakness. Yeah. That's a it's good all one about to the grace. Right here. It's almost it's like about the grace. weakness is the prerequisite for grace. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I am blessed to have the husband that I do. He is a gift from God to me. Yeah. I'm sure that I think for any spouse, it goes without saying, I have my own problems and we could do a whole nother show on that. All spouses do. So <laughs> right. keep in mind that um, you're not, you're part of the problem as well. <laughs> Right. No, Self-care is a must. Keep yourself everybody. well. <laughs> yeah, that's a good sign off. Like we have this moment of seriousness with this Bible verse, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, oh, by the way, like your spouse that you're worried about can get on here and tell all the issues that you have that they're worried about, <laughs> right? So thank Don't you so much. Don't forget to look in the mirror that. during this process. My own recovery. Yeah. And, um, I've never had problems with chemical dependence or with certain types of trauma in my own life. But thank God for those that have, who have breathed life into me and made me whole. Yeah, a lot of times they're, for lack of a better term, sin issues are more obvious. Um, yes. And so they tend to share more courageously and boldly. You know, and they, they generally have more knowledge right, right. off the bat. With a lot more useful. grace. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't mean to to belittle. In in all honesty, I am in awe of all, and I'm grateful. Yeah. And thank you for giving me um, this opportunity to share that it may help others. Yeah.